Chapter 1 of Detailed Minutiae of Soldier Life in the Army of Northern Virginia, 1861 through 1865. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by David Leeson. Detailed Minutiae of Soldier Life in the Army of Northern Virginia, 1861 through 1865, by Carlton McCarthy. Chapter 1. A Voice from the Ranks. Introductory. We are familiar with the names and deeds of the generals, from the commander-in-chief down to the almost innumerable brigadiers, and we are all more or less ignorant of the habits and characteristics of the individuals who composed the rank and file of the grand armies of 1861 through 1865. As time rolls on, the historian, condensing matters, mentions the men by brigades, divisions, and corps. But here let us look at the individual soldiers separated from the huge masses of men composing the armies and doing his own work and duty. The fame of Lee and Jackson worldwide, and as the years increase ever brighter, is but condensed and personified admiration of the Confederate soldier wrung from an unwilling world by his matchless courage, endurance, and devotion. Their fame is an everlasting monument to the mighty deeds of the nameless host who followed them through so much toil and blood to glorious victories. The weak, as a rule, are borne down by the strong, but that does not prove that the strong are also the right. The weak suffer wrong, learn the bitterness of it, and finally, by resisting it, become the defenders of right and justice. When the mighty nations of the earth oppress the feeble, they nerve the arms and fire the hearts of God's instruments for the restoration of justice. And when one section of a country oppresses and insults another, the result is the pervasive malady, war, which will work out the health of the nation or leave it a bloody corpse. The principles for which the Confederate soldier fought, and in defense of which he died, are today the harmony of this country. So long as they were held in abeyance, the country was in turmoil and on the verge of ruin. It is not fair to demand a reason for actions above reason. The heart is greater than the mind. No man can exactly define the cause for which the Confederate soldier fought. He was above human reason and above human law, secure in his own rectitude of purpose, accountable to God only, having assumed for himself a nationality which he was minded to defend with his life and his property, and thereto pledged his sacred honor. In the honesty and simplicity of his heart, the Confederate soldier had neglected his own interests and rights until his accumulated wrongs and indignities forced him to one grand, prolonged effort to free himself from the pain of them. He dared not refuse to hear the call to arms, so plain was the duty and so urgent the call. His brethren and friends were answering the bugle call and the roll of the drum. To stay was dishonor and shame. He would not obey the dictates of tyranny. To disobey was death. He disobeyed and fought for his life. The romance of war charmed him, and he hurried from the embrace of his mother to the embrace of death. His playmates, his friends, and his associates were gone. He was lonesome, and he sought a reunion in camp. He would not receive as gospel the dogmas of fanatics, and so he became a rebel. Being a rebel, he must be punished. Being punished, he resisted. Resisting, he died. 
the confederate soldier opposed immense odds in the seven days battles around richmond eighty thousand drove to the james river one hundred fifteen thousand of the enemy at fredericksburg in eighteen sixty two seventy eight thousand of them routed one hundred ten thousand federal troops at chancellorsville in eighteen sixty three fifty seven thousand under lee and jackson whipped and but for the death of jackson would have annihilated an army of one hundred thirty two thousand men more than double their own number at gettysburg sixty two thousand of them assailed the heights man by one hundred twelve thousand at the wilderness in eighteen sixty four sixty three thousand met and successfully resisted one hundred forty one thousand of the enemy at appomattox in april eighteen sixty five eight thousand of them surrendered to the host commanded by grant the united states government at the end of the war mustered out of service one million of men and had in the field from first to last two million six hundred thousand if the confederate soldier had then only this disparity of numbers to contend with he would have driven every invader from the soil of virginia but the confederate soldier fought in addition to these odds the facilities for the transportation and concentration of troops and supplies afforded by the network of railways in the country north of him, all of which were subject to the control of the government, and backed by a treasury which was turning out money by the ton, one dollar of which was equal to sixty Confederate dollars. It should be remembered also that, while the South was restricted to its own territory for supplies and its own people for men, the North drew on the world for material and on every nation of the earth for men. The arms and ammunition of the Federal soldiers were abundant and good, so abundant and so good that they supplied both armies, and were greatly preferred by Confederate officers. The equipment of the Federal armies was well-nigh perfect. The facilities for manufacture were simply unlimited, and the nation thought no expenditure of treasure too great if only the country, the Union, could be saved. The factory and the foundry chimneys made a pillar of smoke by day and a fire by night. The latest improvements were hurried to the front and adopted by both armies almost simultaneously, for hardly had the Federal bought when the Confederate captured and used the very latest. Commissary stores were piled up all over Virginia for the use of the invading armies. They had more than they could protect, and their loss was gain to the hungry defenders of the soil. The Confederate soldier fought a host of ills occasioned by the deprivation of chloroform and morphia, which were excluded from the Confederacy by the blockade as contraband of war. The man who has submitted to amputation without chloroform, or tossed on a couch of agony for a night and a day without sleep for the want of a dose of morphia, may possibly be able to estimate the advantages which resulted from the possession by the Federal surgeons of an unlimited supply of these. The Confederate soldier fought bounties and regular monthly pay. The Stars and Stripes, the Star-Spangled Banner, Hail Columbia, Tramp, 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 John Brown's Body, Rally Round the Flag, and all the fury and fanaticism which skilled minds could create, opposing this grand array with the modest and homely refrain of Dixie, supported by a mild solution of Maryland, my Maryland. He fought good wagons, fat horses, and tons of quartermaster's stores, pontoon trains of splendid material and construction by the mile, gunboats, wooden and iron, and men of war, 
illustrated papers to cheer the boys in blue with sketches of the glorious deeds they did not do, Bibles by the carload and tracts by the million, the first to prepare them for death and the second to urge upon them the duty of dying. The Confederate soldier fought the Sanitary Commission, whose members, armed with every facility and convenience, quickly carried the sick and wounded of the Federal Army to comfortable quarters, removed the bloody garments, laid the sufferer on a clean and dry couch, clothed him in clean things, and fed him on the best the world could afford and money buy. He fought the well-built, thoroughly equipped ambulances, the countless surgeons, nurses, and hospital stewards, and the best surgical appliances known to the medical world. He fought the commerce of the United States and all the facilities of war which Europe could supply, while his own ports were closed to all the world. He fought the trained army officers and the regular troops of the United States Army, assisted by splendid native volunteer soldiers, besides swarms of men, the refuse of the earth, Portuguese, Spanish, Italian, German, Irish, Scotch, English, French, Chinese, Japanese, white, black, olive, and brown. He laid down life for life with this hireling host, who died for pay, mourned by no one, missed by no one, loved by no one, who were better fed and clothed, fatter, happier, and more contented in the army than ever they were at home, and whose graves strew the earth in lonesome places, where none go to weep. When one of these fell, two could be bought to fill the gap. The Confederate soldier killed these without compunction, and their comrades buried them without a tear. The Confederate soldier fought the cries of distress which came from his home, tales of woe, want, insult, and robbery. He fought men who knew that their homes, when they had any, were safe, their wives and children, their parents and sisters, sheltered, and their business affairs more than usually prosperous, who could draw sight drafts, have them honored, and make the camp table as bountiful and luxurious as that of a New York hotel. He fought a government founded by the genius of his fathers, which derived its strength from principles they formulated, and which persuaded its soldiers that they were the champions of the constitutional liberty which they were marching to invade and eventually to destroy. The relative strength of armies becomes a matter of secondary importance when these facts are considered. The disparity of numbers only would never have produced the result which the combination of these various forces did, the surrender of the Army of Northern Virginia. The Confederate soldier was purely patriotic. He foresaw clearly and deliberately chose the trials which he endured. He was an individual who could not become the indefinite portion of a mass, but fought for himself, on his own account. He was a self-sacrificing hero, but did not claim that distinction or any merit, feeling only that he was in the line of duty to self, country, and God. He fought for a principle, and needed neither driving nor urging, but was eager and determined to fight. He was not a politic man, but a man under fervent feeling forgetful of the possibilities and calamities of war, pressing his claims to the rights of humanity. The Confederate soldier was a monomaniac for four years. His mania was the independence of the Confederate States of America, secured by force of arms. The Confederate soldier was a venerable old man, a youth, a child, a preacher, a farmer, merchant, student, statesman, orator, father, brother, 
husband, son, the wonder of the world, the terror of his foes. If the peace of this country can only be preserved by forgetting the Confederate soldier's deeds and his claims upon the South, the blessing is too dearly bought. We have sworn to be grateful to him. Dying, his head pillowed on the bosom of his mother Virginia, he heard that his name would be honored. When we fill up hurriedly the bloody chasm opened by war, we should be careful that we do not bury therein many noble deeds, some tender memories, some grand examples, and some hearty promises washed with tears. The following letter, written by an aged father to his only son, then a mere boy, who had volunteered as an infantry soldier and was already in the field, is an appropriate conclusion to this chapter, showing admirably well the kind of inspiration which went from southern homes to southern soldiers. At Home, July 17, 1861 My dear son, It may have seemed strange to you that a professing Christian father so freely gave you, a Christian son, to enlist in the volunteer service. My reason was that I regarded this as a purely defensive war. Not only did the Southern Confederacy propose to adjust the pending difficulties by peaceful and equitable negotiations, but Virginia used again and again the most earnest and noble efforts to prevent a resort to the sword. These overtures having been proudly spurned, and our beloved South having been threatened with invasion and subjugation, it seemed to me that nothing was left us but stern resistance or abject submission to unconstitutional power. A brave and generous people could not for a moment hesitate between such alternatives, a war in defense of our homes and firesides, of our wives and children, of all that makes life worth possessing, is the result. While I most deeply deplored the necessity for the sacrifice, I could not but rejoice that I had a son to offer to the service of the country, and if I had a dozen, I would most freely give them all. As you are now cheerfully enduring the hardships of the camp, I know you will listen to a father's suggestions touching the duties of your new mode of life. 1. Take special care of your health. More soldiers die of disease than in battle. A thin piece of damp sponge in the crown of your hat during exposure to the hot sun, the use of thick shoes and a waterproof coat in rainy weather, the practice of drinking cold water when you are very warm as slowly as you sip hot tea, the thorough mastication of your food, the avoiding of damp tents and damp grounds during sleep, and frequent ablutions of your person are all the hints I can give you on this point. Should you need anything that I can supply, let me hear from you. I will do what I can to make you comfortable. After all, you must learn to endure hardness as a good soldier. Having never slept a single night in your whole life except in a pleasant bed, and never known a scarcity of good food, you doubtless find the ways of the camp rough. But never mind. The war, I trust, will soon be over and then the remembrance of your hardships will sweeten the joy of peace. 2. The rules of war require prompt and unquestioning obedience. You may sometimes think the command arbitrary and the officer supercilious, but it is yours to obey. An undisciplined army is a curse to its friends and a derision to its foes. Give your whole influence, therefore, to the maintenance of lawful authority and of strict order, 
let your superiors feel assured that whatever they entrust to you will be faithfully done. Composed of such soldiers, and led by skillful and brave commanders, our army, by the blessing of God, will never be defeated. It is, moreover, engaged in a holy cause, and must triumph. 3. Try to maintain your Christian profession among your comrades. I need not caution you against strong drink as useless and hurtful, nor against profanity, so common among soldiers. Both these practices you abhor. Aim to take at once a decided stand for God. If practicable, have prayers regularly in your tent, or unite with your fellow disciples in prayer meetings in the camp. Should preaching be accessible, always be a hearer. Let the world know that you are a Christian. Read a chapter in the New Testament, which your mother gave you, every morning and evening, when you can, and engage in secret prayer to God for His Holy Spirit to guide and sustain you. I would rather hear of your death than of the shipwreck of your faith and good conscience. 4. As you will come into habitual contact with men of every grade, make special associates only of those whose influence on your character is felt to be good. Some men love to tell extravagant stories, to indulge in vulgar wit, to exult in a swaggering carriage, to pride themselves on their coarse manners, to boast of their heroism, and to give utterance to feelings of revenge against the enemy. All this is injurious to young and impressible minds. If you admire such things, you will insensibly imitate them, and imitation would work gradual but certain detriment to your character. Other men are refined without being affected. They can relax into occasional pleasantries without violating modesty. They can be loyal to their government without indulging private hatred against her foes. They can be cool and brave in battle, and not be braggarts in the absence of danger. Above all, they can be humble, spiritual, and active Christians, and yet mingle in the stirring and perilous duties of soldier life. Let these be your companions and models. You will thus return from the dangers of camp without a blemish on your name. 5. Should it be your lot to enter into an engagement with the enemy, lift up your heart in secret ejaculations to the ever-present and good being that he will protect you from sudden death, or, if you fall, that he will receive your departing spirit cleansed in the blood of Jesus, into his kingdom. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. Commit your eternal interests, therefore, to the keeping of the Almighty Savior. You should not, even in the hour of deadly conflict, cherish personal rage against the enemy any more than an officer of the law hates the victim of the law. How often does a victorious army tenderly care for the dead and wounded of the vanquished, War is a tremendous scourge which Providence sometimes uses to chastise proud and wicked nations. Both parties must suffer, even though one may get the advantage. There is no occasion, then, for adding to the intrinsic evils of the system the odious feature of animosity to individuals. In the ranks of the foe are thousands of plain men who do not understand the principles for which we are struggling. They are deceived by artful demagogues into a posture of hostility to those whom, knowing, they would love. It is against such men that you may perhaps be arrayed, and the laws of war do not forbid you to pity them, even in the act of destroying them. It is the more important that we should exhibit a proper temper in this unfortunate contest, 
because many professed Christians and ministers of the gospel at the north are breathing out, in their very prayers and sermons, threatenings and slaughter against us. Oh, how painful that a gray-headed pastor should publicly exclaim, I would hang them as quick as I would shoot a mad dog. 6. Providence has placed you in the midst of thoughtless and unpardoned men. What a beautiful thing it would be if you could win some of them to the Savior. Will you not try? You will have many opportunities of saying a word in season. The sick you may comfort, the wavering you may confirm, the backslidden you may reclaim, the weary and heavy laden you may point to Jesus for rest to the soul. It is not presumptuous for a young man kindly and meekly to commend the gospel to his brother soldiers. The hardest of them will not repel a gentle approach, made in private, and many of them would doubtless be glad to have the subject introduced to them. They desire to hear of Jesus, but they lack courage to inquire of his people. An unusually large proportion of pious men have entered the army, and I trust they will give a new complexion to military life. Let them search out each other, and establish a fraternity among all the worshippers of God. To interchange religious views and administer brotherly counsel will be mutually edifying. He that watereth shall be watered also himself. And now, as a soldier has but little leisure, I will not occupy you longer. Be assured that every morning and evening we remember you at the family altar to our Father in heaven. We pray for a speedy, just, and honorable peace, and for the safe return of all the volunteers to their loved homes. All the children speak often of brother, and hear your letters read with intense interest. That God Almighty may be your shield and your exceeding great reward is the constant prayer of your loving Father. End of chapter 1